Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Read from um, God's word in Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now I'm going to turn over to Mark 8, verse 34 through 37. Mark 8, 34 to 37. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake, for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And then finally, flip over to Mark chapter 15, verses 37 to 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Well, good morning. My name's Josh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, a, it's a joy to be here with you. I didn't know the same. I worked at Home Depot for a little bit, too, so wow. we'll have to swap Home Depot stories. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm stoked to be here this morning because we are kicking off our series through the Gospel of Mark, preaching straight through books of the Bible is, uh, is kind of my jam, you know, starting in November uh, here at Carl Road with Advent and all the holidays and stuff. I feel like I've been, been out of the groove, so I'm excited to just settle in to the Gospel uh, of Mark. And I also, if I got to pick anything to preach, it would be something from the Gospels. Jesus is just the most captivating, brilliant person I've ever encountered. So I'm excited, excited to, uh, to walk through Mark with you. And as we, uh, as we start our series through Mark, I just want to invite you uh, to bring your Bible to church. We're not going to have the, the scripture on the screen like we've done in the past. Uh, I just want to encourage you to, to bring your Bible and follow along uh, in, uh, in, in your own Bible. And, and this is next level, you know, feel free to take this or leave this. I'd encourage you to follow along in a paper Bible, not, 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 in app. Um, and, you know, you can mark it up, right? Write question marks or exclamation points and all that stuff. And, um, and I, I didn't even encourage you to, to consider our Sunday morning gathering here as just a time to maybe take a vacation from your phone, you know, turn it on silent and just be present to God and his word and your brothers and sisters. So that's it. Take or leave it. A little uh, pastoral invitation there. Well, about 10 years ago, I was deep into the season of life that one of my favorite spiritual writers calls getting your life together. Uh, so the season of life where you're trying to get life together. Mostly it happens in your 20s. It's that time of life where you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, what training or degrees or experience you might need, uh, if you are going to get married, who you're going to marry, if anyone will actually marry you, uh, what, what kind of steps might be necessary to make yourself marryable. Uh, that list was long in my case. Um, so I was deep into that season. And there was this moment where I could see it starting to come together. Uh, but if I was honest, like deep down, it, it felt like I was like building a house of cards or I was just really hustling to make it happen. And I, I, I use the term hustling like not positively. I feel like it, it, it's a positive term out there, you know, like 
rise and grind kind of thing. But for me, it was like this pull it together and try to keep everything from falling apart. Uh, I had been working towards becoming a pastor for a few years through internships, you know, doing the whole part-time barista, part-time worship leader kind of gig. And uh, I managed to get engaged to this incredibly beautiful woman named Camille. And I just moved to a new city in order to marry her and and go to seminary, which I had somehow figured out how to pay for. And I kind of talked myself into a job at, at a somewhat famous church that was known for raising up pastors and church planters. And, and I had this grand vision of planting a super trendy church in a super cool city uh, in a few years after I finished seminary. And so I was just pushing and pulling, trying to make it all fit together. And I remember one of my first staff meetings at this new, at this church I was just starting at. I, uh, I showed up to the staff meeting out of breath and sweaty because I had biked like seven or eight miles to get there because I had sold my car to buy Camille a ring and pay for a honeymoon. Uh, like I said, I was just like trying to just, you know, utilize all assets, just make, make it, make it work. And I sit down at the table, uh, at the conference table with all the youthful ambition and bravado that comes from, from, from a, from a deep fear that I, that I might be a, a, a huge fraud. And, and I, and I hear, and I hear the, the pastor of the church, just in the small talk before the meeting, begin talking about these two older pastors that happened to be mentoring him. And he said this line that I'll rem- probably remember for the rest of my life. He said, they're just two old guys that have thought long and hard about what it means to be truly human. And I thought, that's it. That, that's, that's what I want to be. I want to be truly human. I want, I want to, and I think that might be my calling to help others become truly human by following the truest human, Jesus, together. But in that moment, I also felt deeply how I was so far from that living, like this straining and striving, pushing and pulling, just trying to like force this thing to happen seems so far away from what God designed for us. And mercifully, the culture of that church that I started working at uh, was big about helping scruffy, ambitious guys in their 20s, you know, get a soul, <laughs> get a little depth of soul and come home to Jesus. And so a journey began, a journey that I'm still very much on. And I, I say all that because my time working at that church has proven to be one of the most formative seasons of my life. Is a few year period where the, the values and vision, uh, for practically, for, for what, what life could look like, the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, uh, that had just really settled into my soul in a, in a practical way. And I point that out because it's, it's something that shows us what it means to be human. It's that we change by following other people. We are shaped by our surroundings, and that could be a good thing or a bad thing. But sometimes we can live in, in what, I, what I would call a delusion, is, is, is that we're these rational, autonomous beings that can just kind of like on our own internally decide what we want to do or be. But our souls are permeable. That's how God designed us. I'm, I had to cut a lot of like neuroscience from this sermon because I, I get geeked out about that. But neuroscience is showing that we are people that are formed by relationships. We're formed for relationships and by relationships. Our souls are permeable. We're not hermetically sealed containers that just can live 
uh, autonomous lives. We're always being shaped by the people, the stories, the information, the visions of the good life on which we set our minds. Which is why I'm calling the first half of this uh, journey through Mark, Follow the King. Because it's an invitation uh, to come to this book of the Bible to, to be formed as a follower of the king. Come to it like in a, an electrician's apprentice would come to work. Eyes wide open, humble, knowing that, that he needs to learn a lot and doesn't have all the answers. Ready to, to learn things and to try things and to fail forward, put things into practice. A question for us today is who or what do you follow? One of the scary things in our day and age and in the, in the church culture, a broader church culture, is that it's normal and socially acceptable to be a church member, to call ourselves a Christian, because we intellectually believe that Jesus died for our sins or some other particular set of doctrines. But then practically, in the nitty-gritty of life, We're, we're followers of our favorite news channel or Instagram influencer or YouTube guru or probably some amalgamation of all, all these inputs, like whatever happens to pop up on our Facebook feed, like the, you know, the angry racist friend from high school or, you know, whatever just start, is what we set our minds to instead of Jesus. And so as you and I settle into this new season uh, of being the church together and walk through Mark, my, my hope is that this is a chance to just reevaluate. What is it that we set our minds to? What are we following and letting form and shape us? We're going to do three things this morning uh, as we launch our series. Uh, it's a little ambitious, so um, that's why we did a potluck. If you, had, you don't have lunch reservations, we can go as long as we want. Just start the potluck whenever we're done. Uh, so first we're going to unpack um, Mark's introduction in verse 1. Uh, which is loaded. Uh, we can go to the next slide. I think I might have numbered the slides wrong in my notes. There you go. Uh, and then we're going to do an overview of the, of the book and see it as a brilliant piece of divinely inspired literature. And then uh, I just want to end with Jesus's central piercing uh, invitation and, uh, and challenge to us from the Gospel of Mark. So that's where we are. If you haven't turned there already, open up to Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Mark's gospel is generally understood uh, by scholars to be the first one written, the earliest one written after Jesus' resurrection, written by John Mark, who though he wasn't a, a disciple, one of the 12 disciples, uh, he was around during Jesus' earthly ministry, we know. Uh, funny story later on in Mark that we'll look at. Uh, and... Uh, and most scholars would say, church history records would say that uh, Mark got his information for his gospel from Peter. Um, and as a book of, uh, as, as a book, as a piece of literature, it is genius how the story of Jesus is developed, how he organizes the teachings and stories uh, and moves the action along is just really brilliant. And I had to pull myself out of like the fourth level of, you know, inception, uh, studying all the background stuff, because it's more than we can get to here. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful book. Uh, and to start, here's a question for you. Who's the main character in, in Mark's gospel? You can shout it out. Jesus, yes. If you're new to church, Jesus is almost always the answer. And even if it's not, like you can make the argument that he is somehow. And so Mark's goal in all of his all of his gospel is to reveal Jesus as the king, 
the Son of God. And his intro, the short, punchy one-liner, is, is, is not very long, but it is loaded. And with this one sentence, Mark frames his biography of Jesus with three massive historical and cultural paradigms. We only have time to look at two. The first paradigm is Israel. The good news about Jesus, the Messiah, or your translation might say, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's because gospel means good news. In Greek, it's the word euangelion. And gospel is typically associated with church, with Christianity or whatever. But historically, euangelion was not a biblical word or a particularly uh, Christian word. Uh, instead, it, 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 it was a royal proclamation. Throughout human history, there have been many euangelions, many gospels, because there have been good news about a king, mostly around a victory in battle. The king would come back from war, and there'd be a euangelion. There'd be a proclaiming of, of victory. And it's good tidings from a royal proclamation. And for Mark, this good news is the fulfillment of the story of Israel when he says it's good news about Jesus, the Messiah. And again, your, your translation might say Jesus Christ, which is a very legitimate translation, but I, I love how the NIV goes the extra step to say Jesus the Messiah instead of Jesus Christ, partially because it almost seems like in our day and age, we, we think of Christ as like Jesus' last name, like, hello, Mr. Christ, or, or whatever. But Christ was not Jesus' name, it was his title. Christ is from the Greek word uh, Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, it means anointed one. All throughout the Old Testament, the holy scriptures of Israel, there are prophecies, psalms, stories about the coming Mashiach, the coming anointed one. And so this little line at the beginning of Mark's gospel is Mark saying, boom, here he is. Here is God's anointed one, the one who fulfills the entire story of Israel, stretching back millennia. Jesus is the long-awaited king the promised one who was promised to David to be on the throne of God's people forever. And it's a massive claim that Mark is making right from the beginning, the first few words. It's shots fired at any uh, of the people who, Jewish people who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But Mark has more shots to fire. The last phrase of this introduction is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, which is the second paradigm that addresses Rome. Most scholars would say Mark is writing uh, to the believers in Rome, to a Greek audience in Rome. And this is a direct confrontation of the claim that, that the Caesars, the kings of Rome, <clears throat> made, which is that they were divine sons of God. They were the go-betweens between the people, <clears throat> the go-betweens between the people and the gods of the Roman world. Mark is saying right at the beginning, he's fulfilling the story of Israel and that he over and against the Caesars of Rome is the one true son of God. Is it any surprise that Jesus got killed? This past Wednesday, we're doing an alpha discussion with some high school boys and one of them asked like, why did they kill Jesus? If he's God and he came to love and heal people, why were people mad enough to kill him? It was a great question and we see part of the answer right here. 
because Jesus came as the king, as one who has authority, the anointed fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel, the one true son of God over and against Caesar. Jesus told the two main power structures of his day, the Jewish rulers and the Roman Empire, that he is over and above them. How do people typically respond to losing power? With violence. And we'll see in as early as chapter 3 in, in Mark's gospel, you can either come to Jesus as, as your master, as your king, and flourish under his rule, or you will want to kill Jesus because he will be a threat to your, your current system, your current way of life, the status quo. That's why the people who are outcasts, down and out, outers, people who don't feel like they have a place in the status quo are drawn to Jesus because they're open to submitting to him. From the very first sentence of his biography of Jesus' life, Mark makes enormous claims about who Jesus is. Claims that every single human will have to decide what to do with at some point. Either he's king in God, or he was a first century crazy person who has somehow duped Western civilization for the last 2,000 years. Now let's get to the overview of the book. After today, we'll be looking at much, much, much smaller little passages at a time, uh, which is fun. There's so much treasure to dig for uh, in all of Scripture and in the Gospel of Mark. But one of the risks when you go super slow uh, through Scripture is that you can miss the, 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 the beauty of the, of, of the big picture, like looking at a beautiful painting through, you know, through a magnifying glass or something like that. So today we're going to do a drive-by of the big picture. And, and particularly seeing Mike, the literary qualities uh, of Mark's biography. It's loaded with dramatic irony. Anybody remember that term from freshman English in high school or whatever? Uh, my, dramatic irony is when the reader knows something that the characters in the story don't. My, in this one sentence that we just unpacked, Mark tells us who Jesus is, lays it out there boldly, unequivocally. But then he goes in, into the story and does this 15-chapter slow burn as people slowly start to realize who Jesus is. We, as readers, know that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, but then for over the next 15 chapters, we'll slowly see what it, how it's revealed to the people around Jesus, experience what Jesus says, what he does, and we see people trying to grapple with what he is. Everything orbits around who is Jesus. Structurally, you can break the Gospel of Mark up into three sections. And they all hinge on this idea of revealing Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. After this first sentence, the next eight chapters or so uh, is, is the first section. And it's where Mark is showing us generally who Jesus is through what he said and what he did. We see the, 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 the words and message of Jesus. And we see, also see how people respond to him. And the main idea is that Jesus is the king with all authority. Authority is the main theme of the first part of the Gospel of Mark. Systematically, situation after situation, Mark is going through and showing people what Jesus has authority over. He has authority over nature. He calms storms, authority over disease and death by healing people and raising a small girl from the dead. He has authority to debunk some extra biblical religious traditions of Jewish culture. And he reads and teaches as one with authority. And he has authority over demonic evil. 
And he has authority to call people to follow him, to leave their lives and follow him. In the second part of the book, the middle part of the book, we see this transition period from like the second half of chapter 8 through chapter 10, where Jesus has, has turned kind of towards Jerusalem. He starts up in Caesarea Philippi and starts moving his way south toward Jerusalem. And we essentially have the journey to the cross. And it goes from the emphasis of authority and seeing Jesus do all these miracles to preparing his disciples for the cross. And the turning point is Mark 8, <clears throat> 22 and 30, 22 through 30. Let me read it. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the blind man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So first we have this healing story, which might be the weirdest and maybe my favorite miracle that Jesus did. I just like love picturing Jesus taking this blind beggar by the hand, leading him out of the city, out of the village, away from the crowd and the hype, and, and healing him by just one-on-one -on -one just being present with him. And God in the flesh, Jesus, he uses his physical body to spit on the man's eyes and touch them, which is weird. But then there's even more questions. It's even weirder. Like, why did the guy not get his sight all back at once? Did Jesus need to try harder, like use extra spit? Was he like super blind, like blinder than Jesus thought or something? And, but this is a glimpse of Mark's literary genius. Several times throughout uh, the book, he uses this three-part structure to prove a point, where he has like three different paragraphs and, and stories uh, in, and together. It's like A, B, A, a sandwich structure where the thing in the middle helps make the point. And this miracle is one of, one of those sandwiches. It happens right after, this miracle happens right after a conversation with his disciples where they, they just aren't getting it. Verse 21, right, right before he starts healing the blind man, he, sa he says to his disciples, do you still not understand? And then right after the blind man, we see Peter getting it. He says, you're the Messiah. The story with the blind man is a, is, it, it happened. It's true, but it, Mark, Mark is using it as, as a literary tool, as a metaphor to show what's going on that Peter saw partially. He didn't get the full story. He, he could say that G Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't fully know what that meant, which is why in verse 30, Jesus says, don't, don't tell anybody. And the reason is people don't know what kind of king Jesus is yet. 
this transition period as he moves from authority, proving his kingship and authority to the cross is kind of in limbo. People aren't sure. They're starting to see that he's Messiah, but what kind of Messiah? What does the Messiah do? What, is it, what are the qualities of Jesus' kingdom? What does it mean for him to be king? In part three of the gospel, has it happened yet? And, and this is where the clarity comes. From here on out, the focus shifts from authority to how Jesus becomes king. He's exalted as how Jesus is exalted as king. And it's not, as any, it's not the way that anyone expects. Right after Peter's confession, Jesus, for the first time, begins telling them plainly that he was going to die. And the disciples and the disciples just don't even have categories for that. Like wait, we we we're starting to get that you're the Messiah. Why are you talking about dying? That's not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. Part 3 begins in chapter 11 where we have Jesus's royal entry into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, people spreading their coats palm branches on the ground in front of him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It's a beautiful moment where we see people starting to get it. He's the king. This is a royal entry, but they don't understand what that means. And this is the mind-blowing twist as Mark shares the story of Jesus. The way Jesus becomes king The way Jesus is crowned and exalted as the king is with a crown of thorns nailed to a cross and lifted into the air, surrounded by criminals. The good news about the Messiah, the Son of God, is that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has authority over everything. And what does he use his authority to do? To lay down his life for you and for me to make a way back into life with God. The King of Kings with all power, with all authority is the one who comes in love and lays down his life, allows himself to be killed for the sins of the whole world. And in chapter 15, we have the bookend, the Gospel of Mark. Look, chapter 15, verse 37 38. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the conclusion of the 15 chapter slow burn. It's finally complete. From the beginning when Mark says the son of God to when the centurion confesses, looking at the crucified king, that he is the son of God, taking on all our rebellion against him so that we can know life with God. And it's amazing to me. It almost feels like a, like a, like a tangent or an add-on that right here in the big reveal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, what does Mark say? Is this random line about what? The curtain at the temple, it tore the curtain at the temple that separated sinful humanity from the holy of holies in the temple where the presence of God dwelt on earth was torn. Jesus, in his death, crowned as king, paying the penalty for our sin, has made a way for us to be with God, 
to be holy as God is holy. The good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is we are no longer cut off from the life of God, but now can enjoy being with him as joyful subjects to the king. That brings us to our third point, the central invitation in the Gospel of Mark. Flip back to chapter 8. I should have warned you. Keep your thumb in there. The central invitation, starting in verse 31. Chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Peter, in his partial understanding, can't wrap his head around a Messiah who would die, who would be killed and rejected by the people that he came to save. And Jesus uses this moment with Peter uh, as a teaching moment to issue a statement that's the central teaching, the central invitation from Jesus to us in the Gospel of Mark. Right in the middle of the book, he states it plainly. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you take up your cross and follow him. If you want to follow the king, the king who was exalted on a cross, the king whose crown has thorns in it, it means denying ourselves of things we might want, things we might rightfully deserve or be entitled to and be prepared to lay down our life. Can I be honest with you? There's a large part of me that just wants a happy, comfortable life. I mean, I, I want Jesus, I want to be a Jesus follower, but, you know, there's a lot of me that just wants to go out to eat with Camille, go backpacking, go on vacations, play with my kids, hang out with friends that are like me and make me feel good about myself, eat yummy food whenever I feel like it, and, you know, buy toys and gadgets that entertain me for a few months. And and I'll, those things aren't intrinsically sinful or whatever, but I would be a fool to not consider or be aware of how those good things could crowd out life with God, how I could hold on to good things and not lay them down to follow the king. I can just enjoy comfort and all the enjoyments of life now and just pick up the Jesus stuff when I'm sad or things get hard. And and once again, I got convicted this week by Jesus' life, his downward ascent, that his ascent to the throne was a downward path to the cross and dying, suffering for people. The way he denied himself the rights, the privileges of being God in order to become a suffering servant for my sake. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And the good news, the grace of this is that according to Jesus, losing our lives, giving our lives away is how we find it, how we save it. 
straining and striving for wealth, comfort, achievement, whatever. That, that story is tired. And King Solomon and Ecclesiastes, Tom Brady, you know, like Anthony Bourdain, the people who, who have it all, it doesn't satisfy. There's got to be more than this. So what will you decide? Will you follow the king? Will you allow Jesus to be the king of your life? Have say over what you do, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, over your sexuality, how you relate to food. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. There's not a single part of your life, of your existence, over which Jesus doesn't say that that belongs to me. And that's the way that we find our lives, the way we find the abundant life that Jesus died for you to have. And if you want to do that, I want to just invite you to consider once again Peter's word, uh, Jesus' words to Peter in Mark 8.33. I want to read it in the ESV. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. As a starting point, I just want to invite you to consider what are the things you set your minds on, your mind on. Following Jesus begins with your attention. What do you give your attention to? To what degree is your life set up in order to set your mind on the things of God? If you're not considering where your attention is going, you're you're the only one. Like Google what the intention economy is and get really scared. And so I want to invite you to start each day by setting your mind on the things of God, specifically the king who died for you in love. Let the first thing you do each day to sit quietly with God, open up the Bible, and just come before your king and surrender and humility. Read a few paragraphs of the Gospel of Mark and pause and ask the Holy Spirit what he wants you to see. Jot some stuff down in a journal Listen, it's not on you to come away with a, with a golden nugget for the day. It's not on you to come away with an action step. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is just to turn, set your mind on the things of God, listen to the Spirit. Maybe you have something, maybe, it, it, maybe you don't. But friends, our permeable souls will become more and more saturated with Jesus the more we set our minds on him. The second thing, invitation, a way to set your mind on the things of God is to join me in, uh, you know, nerding out about our sermon series a little bit uh, by doing some reading along with, uh, with, our, with our teaching series here. Carrie and Amy work super hard to set up a, a book table in the lobby. Some of you may have seen it, uh, but I'd invite you to put a little money and time into your, your spiritual growth and, and grab a book. Um, if I could highlight just one book, it's this one. Um, it's called The Ruthless elimination of hurry. Uh, you can buy this one, or there's a few more on the table back there, or order it from wherever you get books. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that I think provides some very helpful framework, some kind of baseline stuff for what it means to follow Jesus. It's not directly about Mark. It's kind of more of generally like a, a following Jesus kind of book, uh, and, and what it means to do that, what it means to set our minds on the things of God in our current cultural moment. Uh, it's not, it's an easy read. It's very stylishly formatted if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, and, and, and listen, I, I know not all of us are readers. And listen, you don't have to be like a voracious reader to enter the kingdom of God. But you know, I think we could all get through one book a year, right? And so if, if you're not a reader, I'd encourage you to give this one a shot. 
And then, you know, let's get coffee and talk about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll highlight some other books. There's some commentaries back there and some other uh, exciting things as we go through our series. But let's, let's dive in to 2023 and follow our King together. Now, in that, that formative season <clears throat> down, in, down in Louisville at that church, uh, there was an early morning where I was supposed to meet someone for discipleship. And uh, as happens when you try to disciple people early in the morning, they sometimes don't show. Uh, which is fine, because that meant I had some some extra time uh, before the workday started, and so I just got out the Gospel of John and and just started reading it uh, alone in in the office, and uh, and it turned out to be a morning I'll remember for the rest of my life as I was just reading through the Gospel of John and <laughs> letting the, the 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 truth of who Jesus is wash over me. The Spirit just revealed Jesus to me in, in, in a whole new light, just so much more vividly. Seeing this, this real-life person, this Middle Eastern man walking the earth, touching people, healing people, feeding people, asking people questions, engaging in dialogue with people. And I, and I, I just got this image of Jesus hugging me. And it was like so specific. Like in the image, he was shorter than me, which is probably true if he was a first-century you know, Jewish man, you know, so I'm like hugging down. And in, 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 the, in the image, he's smiling at me and just the, the physicality of him being a human with a body who could hug me. I felt his beard as he hugged me and he did the classic, you know, two pat man hug, you know, you just like pat each other <laughs> twice on the back. And, and guys, I was just undone, crying, just so full of joy. My king knows me. He loves me. He walked on the earth to show me how to live. And that's, that's my hope for us this year, is that we'd see our King and Savior looking at us in love, knowing that in his death and resurrection, he's for us. And he's inviting you into the life that is truly life. Let me pray. Oh God, we praise you for sending us the King, sending us the Messiah, your Son, we praise you that you don't leave us to wonder what he's like, but you give us your word, uh, four different books that point, uh, point out who he is and what he's done. And Father, you don't want us to be uh, aloof, but you want us to yoke ourselves to him, to follow him, uh, to be his disciples, and, uh, and you, you offer us life in that way. Father, would you just be with us this morning as we consider w- what things we set our minds on, as we consider what you're inviting us to in the new year? Father, would we be a people who follow the King together here in, in, in Columbus, Ohio? Would we be people who are so full of joy uh, as our Savior looks on us in love? Uh, we're able to share that, share that joy and love with those around us. I pray that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved as we all follow our King together. In his name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God.
Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.